Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Well, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. Today, I'm broadcasting live, and we're going to be talking about the movie Jesus Revolution. So lots of you have asked me for my opinion on the movie, what I thought about it, and I finally had a chance to see it last week. And I'm going to give you my very honest review. I'm going to let you know my overall opinion, some things I really liked about the movie, a couple of things I wished would have been a bit different, and one thing that I absolutely hated. So stay tuned for that. And uh, then I'm going to play a pre-recorded interview with my dad. We recorded it a few days ago, who is portrayed by an actor in the film, and he even as a young man appears in the end credits with some old footage. So it's very cool. And uh, just a spoiler alert, if you have not seen the movie yet, we are going to discuss some of the events that take place in the movie that you might not want to know about, be- you know, if you haven't seen it yet, so just take that under advisement. But today's episode is brought to you by Impact 360 Institute, who have created life-changing experiences to help the next generation own their faith. I'm getting ready to drive up there tomorrow to speak to their gap year program. Go to impact360.org to learn more about that. I want to remind you about the Unshaken Conference coming to Southern California. If you are anywhere in the Southern California area, we are going to be there on May 6th with Natasha Crane, Frank Turek and myself, we're going to be at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, to help equip Christians to live boldly for Christ in this chaotic culture. So go to unshakenconference.com to register for that. Don't forget to subscribe to the Unshaken Faith podcast, where Natasha Crane and I bring you 15-minute weekly episodes addressing cultural topics uh, from a biblical worldview. So before we get into the movie, though, I did want to comment on one thing. Many of you may have seen or heard some of my commentary regarding the events at Asbury University over the past couple of weeks. And initially, one of my concerns was that it could be co-opted by other movements, specifically movements like the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR. And NAR is an acronym that stands for New Apostolic Reformation and basically represents a movement within the charismatic church. It does not represent
represent the entire charismatic church. I want to be very clear about that. But it's a movement happening within the charismatic church that believes that God reinstituted the office of apostle to govern the church and through new revelation lead the church into where it should go. So how that's going to look different from maybe a, a typical Pentecostal or classic charismatic, as you might hear a charismatic say something like, you know, the Lord told me to move to Florida and take this new job, something like that. Uh, whereas in the NAR, this new revelation is really going to be seen as more authoritative, something the church has to come under and obey as far as where the church is going. So it can be very dangerous. It can end in a lot of spiritual abuse. And one thing I also want to be clear on is that when we're talking about NAR, nobody is calling anyone's salvation into question. There are many Many sincere Christians that are part of this movement, but um, but there are some dangerous beliefs. So I want to lead you to an article that was written this week, actually just posted today, by my friends Doug Guyvet and Holly Pivik about the NAR influence that was present at Asbury. So um, I think that generally speaking, they did a good job of keeping certain people off the platform that people were worried about, but it kind of did come in the back door. Now I want to say that I think it's important that we look at these things not so that we can trash the whole. Thing Thing, and it certainly does not uh, diminish or cancel out any genuine experience somebody had with the Lord at Asbury. If the Lord touched someone's heart and they came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repented of their sins, and are recommitted their life to Christ or committed their life to Christ for the first time, that is wonderful. We are cheering for that and excited about that. But at the same time, it is really important to be aware of some of these other influences that may have flavored it, may have uh, come in to sort of co-opt it. So go to hollypivick.com slash blog slash NAR and the Asbury Revival. And we'll put those links down in the description below as well. All right. So I want to get right into my movie review, and then I'm going to play for you this dialogue I had with my dad. So Jesus Revolution, first of all, uh, let me give you a little bit of my pre-thoughts. So I actually avoided seeing it for the longest time because when people were saying, what are your thoughts about it? And I knew that an actor played my dad in the movie. Um, I'm not sure how most people would respond to that, but my first response was like, oh, they're going to ruin it. You know, I just like, I don't want to see it because there's no way I'm going to like this. I'm probably not going to like it. Um, so I went into it, I'll just be honest, a little bit negative. I, I just, knowing Hollywood and what Hollywood tends to do, I just did not have have very much high hopes. So um, I was actually incredibly impressed with the production, the acting. It was incredibly entertaining. It was really, really a good movie. And I just, I really want to emphasize that because so often we think about Christian movies as being really subpar artistically. This was not that. This may be the first quote unquote Christian movie that I've seen that did not feel like a Christian movie. It wasn't overly sanitized. It it uh, it was very authentic in a lot of ways. And so I really thought there were some great funny moments, some really heartwarming moments. I really enjoyed the love story between Greg and Kathy Laurie. Particularly, there's a scene where they're standing on a rock and he says, you know, if you ever get between me and God, we're going to have to break up or something. And that just rang with such authenticity. I would almost, I haven't read Greg Laurie's book, but I would almost bet that that actually happened because that just rang with such authenticity, and they made it a little bit comedic, and it was really, really good. So there were some things I really liked about the movie. I really liked the baptism scene. So the movie begins with a camera panning over the ocean baptism that uh, used to happen at Calvary Chapel, and I immediately just kind of gasped. I was like, oh. because I grew up hearing stories of these ocean baptisms, and they captured it 
so well. You can actually look on YouTube and watch footage of the real one, the actual ones that took place, and they really nailed it. They nailed the feel of it. They nailed uh, just the look of it, and it was just wonderful. Um, I also really loved the baptism scene where Greg Laurie wades into the water and is baptized by Lonnie Frisbee, and he's a little bit unsure at first if he's even a Christian, and then Lonnie asks him, do you want to make that decision today? And you see something come over him. And this is where the acting was so good. Jonathan Rumi did such a good, I believe that's his name, did such a good job portraying Lonnie. And the actor that played Greg was wonderful. And you just see this resoluteness come over him. And then they pray this prayer that to me was really sufficient as far as what you would pray when you're beginning uh, your life with Christ, repenting of your sins, making Jesus Lord of your life, committing your life to him. I thought they handled that beautifully. And then the baptism, when he goes under the water, there was a little surprise there. That was a beautiful artistic portrayal of the death and rising of baptism. Just loved it. I thought that was beautiful. Uh, I thought Kelsey Grammer did a really good job uh, playing Chuck Smith. Now, I didn't know Chuck Smith personally as well as my dad did. And you'll hear my dad's thoughts on that in a moment. But I thought Kelsey Grammer really portrayed the gentleness that I knew of Chuck Smith, the humor, and um, but the the resolute sort of conviction that Chuck Smith had. Um, the movie also did a really good job of portraying the cultural influences of the time. So when hippies came to Jesus and they were repenting from their sins, it was very clear what they were leaving behind. And that's where I felt the movie really captured the cultural zeitgeist of the day, right? It, it captured the spirit of the age with the Vietnam War, uh, kids turning to drugs and Eastern religion, and going to these concerts as, you know, looking for God and the spiritual seeking and searching that was happening. But at the same time, you had just this beautiful portrayal of repentance being, uh, you knew what they were repenting of. So those kinds of cultural sins were in the background. And I thought that's particularly what made that baptism scene powerful, because it wasn't just sort of this abstract concept of what he was repenting of. Because today, we live in a much different cultural moment where people are using the word repentance to say things like, well, we should repent for our whiteness and things like this that would be very in line more with what culture would say, but it's not like a biblical repentance. So I thought they did a really good job of that. I really liked the tension they portrayed between Lonnie and Chuck. As many of you you have probably discovered, if you did not already know, uh, Lonnie Frisbee did fall into sexual sin and ended up dying of AIDS and, by the way, was was repentant. Um, this is heavily documented. Uh, he has—there's three books written—we talk about this when I'll play my di uh, conversation with my dad. There are three books that have been written just from him talking on his deathbed that were transcribed into books. And uh, he was entirely repentant and uh, grieved at his sin. And so— um, um, one complaint I've heard about the movie is that they didn't portray that in the movie. And I actually think it was, a, it was the right call to not portray that in the movie, because as far as I understand, that wasn't going on in his life during that time. That was something that happened later. And so I thought the movie makers made a good call to not present something that wasn't happening at that time. Um, okay, so that's all the positive stuff. Obviously, there's a lot of positive. I, I resonate with so many people that are seeing it and and um, just really, really enjoying it. Now, there are some things I wished would have been a little different. The first one is that I wish the gospel had been clearly presented at least once. The prayer at the baptism was great. I loved that. That would have been buttressed so much better if they would have shown Chuck Smith 
sharing the gospel. And the reason I say that is because Chuck Smith, as you'll hear from my conversation with my dad, was a gospel-centered preacher. He preached the gospel every single day. That His life was about preaching the gospel and discipleship through the study of the Word of God. So hippies were coming back to Calvary Chapel night after night for hours of Bible study. And as my dad says, if you sat under Chuck for a couple of years, you knew the Bible pretty well. So these weren't primarily meetings that were dominated by music or other things. It was There was a lot of just verse-by-verse Bible study. Um, the other thing I wish that they would have done a little differently was the way they portrayed Chuck and Cade generally. So um, I didn't like how in the beginning they sort of portrayed Chuck Smith as this burnt out pastor that was wringing his hands over his church being so small, and he was just trying to grow his church, and then the hippies came in, and he saw that as an opportunity to grow his church. As far as every story I've ever heard, and many of you who have lived this and are watching right now, you know that wasn't the case. Uh, Chuck was completely sold out for the gospel and about being faithful to Christ in any situation that God had put him in. And also, interesting little factoid, is that in the movie, it's Chuck's daughter who convinced him to really take the hippies in and get a burden for them. But actually, it was his wife, Kay, in real life. Kay used to watch the hippies walk by, and she had a huge burden for them, and she prayed for them. She wasn't scared of them like she was in the movie. She was really the one who said, you, you've got to, we've got to minister to these kids. They need Jesus. They're searching for God, and, and we need to tell them about Jesus. So that was really Kay. And, um, and so that, that would be one thing I wish they would have done a little better. Um, so, so I think that if they would have made that clear, if somebody were to see the movie and not know that about Calvary Chapel and about Chuck Smith, they might be confused by the baptism scene where Greg Laurie wades out into the water thinking, well, has this guy even been evangelized? Does he even know the gospel or has he just seen some music? Because that's kind of how it's portrayed in the movie. But I think knowing that by that point, he'd probably heard the gospel dozens of times. He knew what he was doing. That gives more power to the baptism. So I wish they would have done that. That would have been a really cool thing for people who aren't familiar with what was going on at that time to be able to connect some dots there. Okay, now I said that there was one thing I was going to tell you that I absolutely hated, and I hate it with a vengeance. I hate, hate hated this about the movie. And it's one line, and it's a line that Chuck Smith's daughter says to him near the end of the movie. And she says, when you let the hippies in, it's like Jesus came in with them. And I hated that line because I feel like it was very disrespectful to who Chuck Smith was because it kind of implies like Jesus wasn't here before. And along with that, the portrayal of the church people as being this really hostile to the hippies. And um, I'm sh yet there was some resistance. There was some fretting over the carpet, as you'll see when I talk with my dad. Um, but generally speaking, from what I've heard from my dad and Chuck Smith himself, there really wasn't that much hostile opposition from the elders and from people in the church. There were a few. But for the most part, people were very excited to see the, the work of the Lord in the hippies and the God gospel coming to the hippies. So I hated that line because it really implied that everybody who was a part of his church prior to that 
they didn't have Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. And that is just could not be farther from the truth. So I hated that line. When you let the hippies in, Jesus came in with them. All right. So those are my thoughts. Um, again, the acting was phenomenal. Production was phenomenal. And I really think that if you have some of those gaps filled in, especially for young people, see, those of you who lived this, you kind of fill in those gaps naturally because you lived through it. But I, I wanted to explain some of those gaps to my daughter. Like, hey, the, by the way, they preached the gospel every day when they were there. They studied the Bible every night when they came back to Calvary Chapel. And um, that's that doesn't exactly come through in the movie. All right. I'm going to take you to my conversation with my dad. I'm trying a new thing today. I'm live right now. So while we're watching the conversation, I'm going to be interacting with you in the comment section if you have questions. And then we'll come back at the end and I'll take some questions. If you guys have any questions for me about this, um, I'd be happy to take a crack at it and do my best to answer them. But first, I want to tell you about uh, today's sponsor is Impact 360 Institute. So Today's teens, Gen Z, totally different than the generation that my dad was in. When they were all of my dad's generation, they seemed to be searching for Jesus. They wanted to know where to find him. Like, just tell us where he is. Where is God? We want to find him. It's a little bit different today. So Gen Z, born between 1999 and 2015, are the truly first post-Christian generation. They're growing up in a post-Christian culture. That really hasn't happened before in America here. So for Gen Z, atheist is no longer a dirty word. Truth is relative, and it's harder than ever to confidently answer the biggest questions of life. So how can we prepare our children to be grounded in biblical truth and cultivate a support system that's going to disciple them and prepare them for the challenges they face each day? Well, Impact 360 Institute has created these life-changing experiences to help the next generation own their faith. And I'm getting ready to get in my car tomorrow and drive up there. I'm going to be two, I'm going to be doing two days of intense teaching with the nine-month fellow gap year program. It's a wonderful program. If you have a, a kid that's getting ready to graduate high school, or if you're a young person who you're wondering what to do after high school, or you're under, uh, you know, in around in the college age, but you haven't gone to college, consider taking this nine-month nine gap year program where you're going to be discipled uh, and learn to live your faith out locally and globally through servant leadership. It's great apologetics, theology, great stuff. So if you know a next generation leader who has incredible influence potential and wants to grow in their faith, you can go to impact360.org to check out more information. Can't recommend it highly enough. And with that said, I'm going to take you to my conversation with my dad. Well, dad, I gave you a call the other day after I saw the Jesus Revolution movie and of course, we know that in dramatizations, there's going to be some artistic, artistic license taken, right? You can't uh, go down every rabbit trail for 30 minutes to figure out how this person came to be a part of things. And so I called you because I was really interested in some of the historical facts as they're portrayed in the movie versus how things really happened. And one of the things I was thinking about is that the movie portrays Lonnie Frisbee finding you guys in a coffee shop and bringing you to Chuck Smith's house. And of course, I know that's not exactly how it happened. So I'd love to start there. First of all, with your thoughts about what it feels like to have yourself portrayed by an actor in a movie, and then maybe your general thoughts about the movie first. Well, let's start with the general thoughts. First of all, uh, let me just say that I've watched it three times, and the first time I saw it was a pre-advance pre, pre, pre of an event screening online, and uh, it took me about a third of the movie to realize it's not a documentary. Okay, I was seeing a lot of 
liberty right. is taken with facts. Second issue is it's Greg Laurie's story. It's not. It right. says the Jesus right. Revolution, but it's not really inclusive of that whole thing. It's it's uh, framed around his story. So once I got through the first third of the film and I realized that that was what I was going to get, I started to really enjoy it. Then I saw it a second time, didn't have those expectations, and uh, I liked it even more. And the third time, same thing. So uh, by and large, I think it's a really great film that people should see. It's evangelistic, and uh, they should bring their non-Christian friends to see it. And I think God's going to use it mightily. It might even be the biggest film, uh, Christian film since um, The Passion. Who knows? It's kind of... Yeah, well, it's already been very popular, I think, uh, from what I was reading about. It's it's really been a big hit so far. So I wonder if you could talk about how you first came to know of Calvary Chapel. I'd love you to walk us through your conversion, because you actually got saved at Calvary Chapel, and uh, then maybe how Love Song got connected mm -hmm. with Chuck Smith and started to play well, the, during the this The thumbnail um, testimony, I guess, is that... Uh, I, I came out of church background. I rejected that when I was really young. Went into music, had some success there. And uh, around that started to diminish. And around the 60s, when everything was happening, I got real curious about the hippie movement. What's going on with these people that want to grow their hair long and, and uh, stare into light bulbs like they're seeing the universe? And uh, so I started uh, connecting with that. I, I, and I, I was alcoholic at that time. But I started to get into marijuana and other drugs and eventually LSD. And uh, that kind of turned a lot of things around for me. Um, it's, um, it's a synthetic and uh, uh, counterfeit experience, spiritual experience, but it's still something you go through, you know, and you're reacting to it mm -hmm. a certain way. And at that time, I thought it was a good thing. So um, my friends and I were uh, a bunch of us that were musicians and other people, we, we started to uh, read the Bible under the influence of acid. We moved to Hawaii. There's a whole bunch of stuff. It's actually all in my book, which we'll probably plug a little bit later, uh, all the, the detail of the stories. But um, so anyhow, um, we wound up back in Laguna Beach after a long circuitous route, uh, Hawaii, Salt Lake City, then eventually Laguna Beach. We started to hear about Calvary Chapel from hitchhikers. And pre previously, we'd, we'd be driving along Pacific Coast Highway and uh, we'd pick up hitchhikers to get a free joint or something. You know, they might be carrying a bag of weed. Now we're picking up kids and they're saying, hey, man, we found Jesus. And we said, well, we're looking for him. Where'd you find him? You know, <laughs> and Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel. So one night we were having a Bible study down at the, uh, the Laguna House, we called it. It was really quite a nice home overlooking the uh, Pacific Ocean. I don't know how we managed to rent it just a bunch of itinerant hippie musicians, but it was really nice. And uh, we were arguing about tongues. And uh, imagine that. And we <laughs> thought about this place called the Blue Top that was one of Calvary's Christian houses, and Lonnie Frisbee was the elder there. We thought, well, there's a bunch of guys that are, we thought we were mostly Christian at that point because we had kind of narrowed our search down to have to include Jesus, but we hadn't quite bought into Christianity yet, but we knew they had. So we thought, well, let's go down there and ask them about this passage. So we drove up 15 miles or so to the blue top from Laguna to Newport and um, knocked on the first, first door, you know, number one, and uh, some hippie answered the door. And we said, hi, we're from down the road, and you know, we want to ask you about this thing in the Bible called tongues. Well, I don't remember tongues ever coming up again in the evening, but they brought us in and they loved on us and uh, invited us to Calvary. Then eventually I, I, uh, I went up there on my own 
uh, I didn't really want to go because I'd been through a lot of trouble with my Christian background. I was raised in a certain denomination that shall remain unnamed right now, but was pretty legalistic and all that. And uh, I didn't know if I wanted Christianity. So I didn't really want to check the church out. But yet I felt if I'm a tr true, honest seeker, I need to check it out because if God really is moving there, I need to find it out. So I drove around the church about four times and finally I got my courage up and pulled my little whatever I was driving at the time in and parked and went into the back row so I could make my escape. And uh, I, I think Chuck, was, <laughs> Chuck Smith, not the hippie preacher, was preaching that night and there was tremendous power in the music. I remember hearing some of the kids sing their, you know, the choruses that were birthed there were eventually, many of them swept the, the world. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And I was wondering why I was being so deeply affected by this kind of substandard music when I've been listening to Pink Floyd and, you know, Beach mm. Boys and all that. And um, so at the end of the service, the Holy Spirit really got a hold of my heart. And uh, I began to connect, not so much from the message, but really from the whole spiritual atmosphere of the place, the sense of God's presence and uh, just the purity of the whole thing and the simplicity of the whole thing. And and God lifted me out of that. I was in a pretty dark place. I, 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 I felt my hippie philosophy at that time was that not no one man could not be saved till all men were saved. So I was carrying my load, trying to be, you know, I I got to do my part till we all get, you know, to connect with God, and then we'll be in God consciousness or whatever. And that night I realized that uh, is a one one man show there with God. You know, you had to get right with God on a personal level. And I did that. It was a very powerful experience. I was laughing. I was crying. I I was expelling fluids. I had snot all over my beard, but I didn't care. You know, I really felt I'd connected with God. And so I didn't go forward that night, but I told God, I said, you know, this is this is really different than what I expected. And we've been searching through all this Eastern philosophy and all this different stuff. Um, I'm going to I'm going to stick with this until you tell me different. That was my my, you know, my altar call. Later, I did go forward physically to the altar and I never looked back since. Love Song started to play at Calvary and we began our ministry. And that was uh Let's see now, probably 52 years ago that I started ministering. Wow. Now, at the meeting that you were at, because this my memory of hearing about Chuck Smith all my life is that he was such a gospel-centered preacher. So was, was the gospel preached when you went to Calvary Chapel more than just the music? I mean, was a gospel message presented? Unique to every Calvary Chapel service, maybe not unique in the sense that no other church did it, but the gospel was always preached. They had an altar call at the end with a clear presentation of the gospel. The meeting was not about, um, you know, falling on your face or speaking in tongues. That was something that was extracurricular. They believed in all that. But the meetings were about the word of God. We came for Bible studies. We didn't come for phenomena. Yeah. And uh, it was powerful because we learned the Bible. If you sit under Chuck Smith for two years, you you know the Bible pretty well. And... Uh, so that was the essence of those meetings. And uh, kids would pack the altars after the services. I, I, without exaggerating, I've seen nights, even when we gave altar calls, Love Song would have service or a concert. We give altar calls. Up to 60, 70% of the audience would come to the front. And I think, did they misunderstand what we're, you know, this isn't about <laughs> you missed your devotions or you got mad at your wife. This is the first time yeah. 
nobody would budge. And that's what brought wow. the uh, that massive influx. Uh, that church grew when we started playing there. Which we should probably tell that story somewhere in this interview, how we got started there. But when we started yeah. playing there, the little church exploded from 200 to 2,000 in four months' time. And we moved into wow, the wow. tent, which was green, not white. <laughs> it is in the not movie. white, like the movie, right? <laughs> and uh, it was just an old canvas yeah. circus tent, you know. And it was, it was so, mm-hmm. you know, it was mud, uh, dirt floor. So in the in the in the winter, you'd walk in, and, you know, it was all muddy. And uh, in the summer, it was rock hard. And the the fans were louder than the band in the summer, and the heaters were louder than the band in the winter. But man, God was moving in the place, and people loved to come to the tent. And there were some of the great great days of Calvary Chapel. And they stayed in the tent till they built the sanctuary that's there today because Chuck built it brick by brick. He would not get in debt. So he waited until money came in. And when that church was finished, it was paid off. So that's some of my background wow. in that whole scene. And it was it was an awesome time. And, and it did affect, yeah. you know, so many hippies. Just, just at Calvary Chapel itself, there was, to be conservative, probably tens of thousands of kids that maybe hundreds you know, I, just, I really don't know. No one has stats on it, but there was a lot of kids. I know how many people, how many kids were coming to the baptisms. And we would baptize every, sometimes twice a month, up to a thousand people. So it was an amazing time. Well, one of the things that really stood out to me in the movie, because, you know, again, you only have two hours. You can't convey absolutely every detail. And I think that knowing the story and kind of being raised in that atmosphere, one thing that I don't think really came through in the movie is how often the gospel was preached and how what a gospel-centered preacher Chuck Smith was and very strict with his doctrine too. And um, so when you know that scene when Greg Laurie comes into the water to be baptized, when you know what the environment was like, you know that he had heard the gospel so many times up to that point. It wasn't just some random hippie rumbling into the water to try to find some you know, better thing for his life. And so I, I really wanted to make sure we, we brought that out. And another thing, Dad, that really I thought was so cool because, you know, when people talk about revival and we say, well, you know, you have to kind of wait to judge the fruit. And of course, the fruit of the revival, whatever you want to call it, that happened at Calvary Chapel and everywhere else in that time uh, is is so evident. And I was just watching an interview with Love Song and I'm just thinking all of these guys are still walking mm-hmm. with the Lord. I mean, you look at the pastors that came out and just one little sweet thing, too, when I was in the theater, um, it was like three thirty on a Tuesday, I believe, when I saw the movie. It was a Monday or Tuesday at three thirty, and I thought there was going to be nobody in the theater. It's just the middle of the afternoon, and the theater was fairly full, and almost everybody was over sixty-five, and you could tell these were people who, in their younger years, were at least affected or touched in some way by this movement. And even at the end of the theater, I mean, of the movie spontaneous praise breaking out of people saying, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, because they remember and they probably got saved during that time. And here they are, 65 plus, still walking with the Lord, excited to see a movie made about the time that they gave their hearts to the Lord. I thought that was really sweet. Um, So tell us how Love Song got connected with with Chuck Smith and with Calvary Chapel, because Lonnie Frisbee did not find you guys in a coffee shop. So how did that happen? Well, let me let me say this little quick thing about Chuck Smith before I get to that. Um, we toured with Chuck in 2010, just 
few years before he died, and it was a sweet time for him to go back out on the road with a bunch of guys and minister to the Calvary chapels. And one night I was talking to him, I said, Chuck, you know, you're the most open-minded, closed-minded man I've ever met. And what I meant was when it came to doctrine, he was narrow-minded. He did not want to veer from the Word of God. He wasn't into all the extracurricular kind of thinking. I was a little more progressive in that regard, and I was checking out what I used to call wholesome heresy to see what was really there. <laughs> it's my little joke. Uh, but, my, but the anger of my, my all my search was that Chuck grounded me firmly in the Word. But here's the deal. He was open to the cultural expression, you know, of having hippies play. It was his idea to have us play. He invited us that night and Lonnie preached and we sang. I, I think we haven't told that story yet, so I'll wait and tell that story. But um, yeah, uh, he was really open to what God was doing. He was very careful to steward it very carefully. He didn't like every group. He didn't like everything about it. He had more of an instinct for the, the ability of the band to convey the power of God than he did about how good their music was. That was more of his, his yardstick. So uh, that's how it was, you know, and I, I think he was God's man for that time because he really allowed it to breathe. I'll tell you one little quick story. We had a, we were, uh, <clears throat> we were put up in some empty nesters homes. They had a, some bedrooms and they kind of put us up for a year plus and, uh, you know, fed us and stuff. So we wouldn't have to worry about money while we're getting our ministry started. So Chuck would call us about, uh, you know, sometimes four or five in the afternoon. He'd say, boys, I'm coming by, grab your guitars, and we're going out to Riverside to be meeting tonight. So we did that all the time. So one night the phone rings and our drummer answers it. And we're hearing this one side of the conversation. Yeah, Pastor Chuck. That's how John talked. Yeah, Pastor Chuck. Yeah, we'll be there. Yeah. Well, he didn't say we'll be there, but what time? And, um, when he put the phone down, he said, well, what time are we supposed to be at the church? He said, well, he doesn't want us. He wants me. He said he wants me to come and bring my drums and do a solo in church service. And even we thought that was weird. And then John did this amazing <laughs> solo and gave his testimony. And it was so powerful that we incorporated it into our concerts after that, you know. But uh, so it was a, that was a great little addition. But as far as the uh, coffee shop thing, uh, that's another one of those um, artistic license things. What... Love Song never played in Chuck's living room, and we were not with Lonnie mm -hmm. when we got the invitation. What happened was, we were going there about three weeks, and um, we we loved Lonnie. We loved his preaching, and we thought, wow, how cool he looks like Jesus. Well, we kind of look like Pink Floyd or something, and we've been writing these songs. Uh, our music would be a really good fit here. Let's go see if the pastor would let us play. So we walked into the uh, the the office on a weekday and um, just talked to the secretary. We didn't have a meeting planned or anything. And Chuck was gracious enough. He came, took us out to the sanctuary and asked us our testimonies. You know, years later when we were doing that 2010 tour, he told me, he says, when you guys came in, there was no way I was letting you on my platform. Three weeks old in the Lord, drums, long hair, beards. But at the end of the little 20 minute polite interview, he said, well, play me a song. And so we played the song called Welcome Back. And the Lord really touched his heart. And the next thing we heard was, can you guys play tonight? Wow, that was a cool audition, you know, play tonight. So we said, well, is it usual seven o'clock? And he said, yeah. And we said, well, our guitar player is doing weekends in Orange County Jail, but he gets out at six. So we'll go pick him up and we'll meet you uh, tonight at the church. And that's the first time we played. And that was the beginning of the uh, the uh, explosion, really. Not, not because of us, but I think the elements yeah. were in place for God to finally... 
uh, unleashed this whole thing. And then shortly thereafter, other bands emerged very quickly. I remember walking in one night mm -hmm. and uh, there was this other group on the platform. Maybe they were going to do the service and I just came for Bible study. But I'd never, I'd only seen one other band that was kind of hippie called the Joy Band who did play there before we ever did. And Children of the Day were there before we were. And um, so I thought, who are these guys? You know, kind of like, who are these guys? This is our church, you know. <laughs> It turned out to be the way, the group called the way, and they were so good, you know. And they became one of the the Maranatha bands later, and then Blessed Hope and other bands emerged. Then Maranatha Records started. The first record was that Everlasting Love in Jesus music concert that influenced Michael W. Smith to become a Christian uh, artist, mm. and um, it was um, a compilation to help the bands. Really, what it was for, they'll have something to sell at the back of the the. Uh, service to get gas money that was chuck's motive in starting maranatha music so that was the sweet simple beginnings of all that well i hope you're enjoying my conversation we're about halfway through it we're going to play the rest of it in just a minute but i want to tell you about uh another sponsor of today's podcast and that's our friends at good ranchers you guys march is here and you can actually win two thousand dollars of free meat with good ranchers this month uh head over to goodranchers.com march and sign up today and when the time comes you fill out your march meatness bracket okay they're doing not march madness but march meatness. And if yours is the best, then you're going to win free meat from for a year from Good Ranchers. Guys, I love Good Ranchers. We eat their meat in our home. Oh, I love it. It comes right to your door, frozen, ready to go into the freezer. You can pull it out for an easy meal. 100% American born, raised, and harvested. Absolutely delicious steakhouse quality. And you can subscribe any day this month. So there's so much going on. This is the month to subscribe to Good Ranchers because not only do you get the chance to win uh, free meat for a year, but you can subscribe any day in the month of March and get free bacon for a for a year added to your order. So uh, it'll be uh, pick the box of 100% American meat that you want, get the free bacon, and if your bracket wins, it'll be free for a year. And if you don't win, you still get the free bacon. So it's just a no brainer. And if you need something else to push you over the edge, you can use my code Alisa to get an additional twenty dollars off of your first order. So that's a chance to win two thousand dollars of free meat, free bacon for. A year and twenty dollars off. Go to GoodRanchers.com/slash/march. Use the code Elisa. That's GoodRanchers.com/slash/march. Use the code Elisa. Well, so let's talk about Chuck and Kay Smith because in taking artistic license, one of the criticisms I personally had was that I felt that they didn't really present Chuck and Kay accurately. Um, of course, there's that scene where Kay's kind of scared of the hippies. And it, when the movie begins, Chuck is sort of wringing his hands over having a very small church. And he kind of sees the hippies as this way to grow his church. And the hippies come in and save Chuck rather than the other way around. And um, But I'd love for you to talk about them. Is is that true about them? Was he kind of viewing it that way? And what was her role well, in it? Well, first of all, I thought Kelsey Grammer did a great job playing a pastor. Uh, it wasn't really an accurate representation of, of Chuck's um, attitude or personality in that regard because uh, Chuck was the most positive man I've maybe ever known. I heard him say from the platform was mm. he'd never been depressed. And I thought, how does anybody go through life without being depressed? And uh, <laughs> he was, Chuck would have pastored five people for the rest of his life if he felt that it was the Lord's will. And so I didn't see him that way the way he was portrayed in the movie, although I think that is a good way to characterize it so the story could flow correctly. But um, 
No, he wasn't like that at all. And Lonnie never really schooled Chuck that I ever knew and came in. And it was Chuck's, well, here's, it wasn't Chuck's idea to have the hippies. It was Kay's idea. Because what happened was they went down to Huntington Beach and um, Chuck was kind of like not digging it. They need a bath is a true line in the movie. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Kay said she saw some young girl, as I understand it, that was all stumbling around, a pretty young girl that was all into the drug scene. And um, she, her heart went out. She said, Chuck, they need help. They need Jesus. So she was the one that spurred him into uh, considering opening the church to the, to the hippies. Then um, there, it is true that he asked to meet a hippie. He wanted to meet a hippie. Well, the hippie, Lonnie really came into the picture. It was, again, dramatized that Jan, daughter Jan picked up uh, uh, Lonnie. It was actually her boyfriend. Small detail. It doesn't really matter. He brought her, brought Lonnie to Chuck's house. And that was the first time Chuck had met a hippie. And Chuck uh, and Lonnie talked and compared notes for a long time, as I understand. I wasn't there. But... Um, it was Chuck's idea, as far as I know, Chuck and Kay both, that decided to really let the hippies in. Uh, they, Like I say, they had a couple of bands playing there already, so that wasn't a new idea for them. But when they heard us, they felt like uh, something special, I think. And when they asked us to play, then we, uh, the whole thing kind of really broke open. And again, I don't know if I said this, but not because we were there, but we were just a right. part of the God's plan that when everything was in place to, to start this huge... Uh, awakening and um, and harvest of the hippies, I'd call it. So, um, yeah, Chuck was a very secure guy. Uh, I'll tell this one kind of cute story, sad but cute. The very daughter, Jeanette, told me the story. She says, my dad stood in front of the mirror. He was weeks away from death. And he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Whoa. Wow. You know, you're yeah. going to meet the Lord in a little while. He preached for the last week of his, his life. And that. no, he was a very strong leader and there never really was that kind of head-to-head -head clash with Lonnie. There were obviously some problems. Uh, I wasn't in, involved in the inner circle of that, so I can't really speak to it. The only thing I knew was mm -hmm. that uh, uh, Lonnie was a, a little different for what Cal was used to. people were used to hearing at Calvary, but so were we. So it was the fact mm -hmm, that Chuck mm -hmm. was willing to open up the church to these, really these more culturally relevant figures that, that really started the whole thing going. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about Lonnie in a minute. But first, you mentioned a couple of times opening the doors to the hippies. So that makes me wonder, were, were the doors closed to the hippies before that? What, what does that look like? Because in the movie, it really portrays the congregation as being very, not just hesitant, but quite hostile toward letting hippies come into the church and even with scoffing. And um, was that accurate? Because that that was a little different than my understanding of what the general view of the congregation was like. So speak to that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, you, you have to realize it was before my time, because when I came there, there were a lot of hippies already going. So I wasn't there when they either did or not open the door. I do know the one incident about the rug is true. Now, there's two parts to that story. There's the rug part and the foot washing part. The foot washing part has always been told, but everyone called it an urban legend. I know someone must know if it did happen, it happened. But I did not personally yeah. know that happened. But I, I wasn't there that night, but I, I heard about the story about what really happened was uh, maybe the elders 
had the ushers do it, but the ushers were holding the hippies back in the lobby. And Chuck came in mm. and um, saw it. And he said, why are the hippies in the lobby? Well, Chuck, they have bare feet and they're going to get the new carpet dirty. And they didn't actually rip the carpet out, as some legends say. But he said, well, mm. if they can't come in, then let's rip the new carpet out. And that is the true part of the story. But I really loved how they depicted the second part in the movie. I thought it was a very good movie making to have the elders. I don't really know. Every elder I ever did meet was a very loving person. And I here's a little, another little fact. I asked Chuck when we were touring in 2010-ish, I said, when we came in, did a lot of people leave? Did Were they averse to having hippies invade the church? And he said, no. He said, we hardly lost anybody. And the people we lost were either moving anyhow. He said, I can't say we didn't lose somebody over that, but it wasn't dramatic. So correcting that part of it too. And again, correcting it, yeah. not because we, you know, the movie is great and the choices they made were to run the, move the story along, but that's, that's pretty much the backstory from the, from an insider. Yeah, because my, I, I told you this, my concern is that it's it was such a different time in church history back then. It was very clear when hippies were repenting of their sins, the cultural sins were in view. And, and I think the movie did a good job about this too, is putting the cultural sins in view. You understood what they were repenting of when they trusted in Christ. Whereas today, there are people within the movement of Christianity trying to redefine sin and all this. And I just know enough about Chuck Smith to know he wouldn't have stood for that. And so when the when the movie portrays these kind of stuffy church people, I think a lot of people in our culture might think, oh, yeah, you people that are worried so much about doctrine and about sin and all this, you're like those stuffy mm -hmm. church people. But we're really in a different context now. There's there's all sorts of false teaching and false teachers, and there's always been false teaching and false teachers. But uh, it just seems like it was a little bit more clear in that in that context. But I, I do hope people won't transpose that onto today because that could it's a totally different time in in our culture. Um, but I do want to talk about Lonnie with the, the few minutes we have left here, because it's all, you know, obviously now that the movie's been out, people are discovering more about the real history behind, you know, what happened with Lonnie. And um, actually, just so people know, there is a, I think is a couple of books three. that are transcribed, three books that are transcribed from his word, the, the, what he spoke into a recorder on his deathbed. So if you want clarification on whether or not Lonnie was repentant in his life or where, where he was at when he died, I really recommend, you know, picking those up and you can read his own words. But as people are discovering, and that was not portrayed in the movie or even really acknowledged is that Lonnie fell into sexual sin after um, his time at Calvary Chapel at some point and ended up dying of AIDS. And then on his deathbed, you know, you'll get to hear some of his words if you get these books. But it's misreported in media, even on, I think, the Wikipedia page, it's misreported that he was this active homosexual during this whole time that this movie was going on. And, and my understanding is that's not the case. He fell into sin. He was molested as a as a young child. Um, was very confused. Never really got he the healing he needed. I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just saying it wasn't like he was this closeted gay guy that was fooling everybody. This was something he fell into later. Was deeply repentant of it on his deathbed. You uh, you can read one of the sections where he even says, "I I do not consider myself to be a homosexual. I predict that homosexuality is going to be the one of the biggest battles the church is going to face." in the coming decades. And he was very, very clear on those things. So I just wanted to say that, but I wanted you also to talk about uh, that aspect of Lonnie, because you worked with Lonnie mm -hmm. daily, uh, as far as I understand. 
Did you sense any of that going on or what was your take on that? Well, my experience with Lonnie was about the first year that we were Christians and especially the first few weeks, um, maybe three, four months, we were almost inseparable. Lonnie would pick us up, um, bunches of us, we'd go down the blue top, we'd get in a car, we'd drive around and talk about God and then he stopped the car. Uh, I will tell this one quick story. Um, we're driving along with Spreadfield, myself. We're riding along with Lonnie. He had a he had a Lincoln Continental and he had a bumper sticker on it saying "God provides" because he didn't pay for it. He someone gave it to him and he was embarrassed to drive a Lincoln Continental because he was supposed to be this hippie minister. And uh, he pulled the car over in this this apartment complex in Newport Beach and he said, "Grab your guitars and follow me." So we went up to this room 14 or whatever up in this apartment building and he knocks on the door and the door opens and marijuana smoke wafts out and uh there's about 12 hippies in there look like deer in the headlights who are these guys he walks into the room he says we are servants of the most high god and we've come here to preach the gospel to you but first love song is going to sing think about what jesus said well we weren't love song we were just chuck and fred we had one guitar but we sang the song lonnie gave a little three five minute presentation of the gospel and two guys raised their hand it was only two out of the 12 or 10 or who were in there so i saw those guys at church for years and about oh 25 30 years later i was leading worship down at calvary and one of the guys approached me because i always wondered what happened there whether lonnie knew somebody and the guy comes up and he said i have a question i've been waiting to ask you for 30 years he said how did you guys know we were up there so I can only surmise that Lonnie heard God say, go up to room 14 and preach the gospel. I don't know. Or he saw the marijuana smoke wafting that out of the be, window. That <laughs> so that, That's a I cool story, a of, though. I saw a yeah. lot of that with Lonnie. He was very, um, very charismatic in that regard and uh, prophetic in that regard. But uh, as far as the homosexual thing, in the year or so that I was tight with Lonnie, I never saw one glimmer of that. I never saw a sideways glance. And um, he was married to Connie. We knew Connie really well. And uh, then afterward, I started to hear the, the reports. And I guess whatever is in um, Roger Sachs's books is probably the true story because it's from Lonnie himself. And I know I had to deal with it in my book, Rock and Roll Preacher, <laughs> available. That's right. Available Hold it up. At, Let's, yeah, we, yes, this is dad's story right here. Preacher. Get it on Amazon. Um, the details are in my book, but um, I remember the, that the statement that he said, I'm not a homosexual, but I think he did fall into mm -hmm. that kind of sin. You can, you can say, right, yeah. you can, you can have a, com, commit adultery with a woman, but it doesn't make you an adulterer. If you do it as a lifestyle, then that's what I think the Bible means right. by adulterers. You know, that scripture, scares, right. that scripture scares people because they think, well, I did that 20 years ago, but I've been all good mm -hmm. and I not going to heaven. So I think it's people who walk in that. And I know that Lonnie was... Yeah, being given over to it in a way. Exactly. I, think I agree. And I think Lonnie was in that category. He was resisting it and may have fell, fallen. I don't know because I, I was not privy to that private information. But, you know, you and I have... A couple of friends who we know have that drive that don't practice and don't identify, and uh, mm -hmm. yet they're still in ministry. So I don't know really the full story behind Lonnie. What we landed on in our in my book was pretty much what Roger said. We took it pretty much out of his book because that part of it I did not experience. 
Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, I think that really helps set the record straight. Anything else you want to say about the movie or that time? Um, let me think. It's better when you ask me questions. Uh, there's so <laughs> many stories. We could go on probably for two hours. But, uh, I know. So many cool things happen. But, uh, huh. Well, I think that the biggest thing for me that stands out is kind of what I mentioned earlier is just the long lasting fruit of so many people that came to Christ during that time and are still walking with the Lord today, walking in ministry. Yeah. They've discipled their families. I mean, and that's the thing I think about, too, is that you think about all the, the stuff with Lonnie. You think about just even uh, the tension. You know, they're, they're definitely at least by the time Lonnie went off to Florida and got involved with the vineyard, there was a lot there was tension between what was going on there and with Chuck and that there's this famous story uh, that where Chuck basically showed up and said, we're dividing today. We're not going to be, you know, he disunified with that. And um, so there was definitely some tension there. And again, that's just why I respect Chuck Smith so much because he was just a man of firm convictions. Mm-hmm. And like you said, even a week before he died, he gets up and preaches and you think I watched it because I thought, oh, he's going to you know, do this big grand sail off into the sunset. And he just like open your Bibles to <laughs> just preached the word like he always did just wherever he was in the bible that's what he preached let me uh, do a little historical correction here uh the chronology of lonnie coming around to the vineyard and all that the original vineyard as you know was in our living room you were probably kids when we were having those meetings and then it grew we had a bible study at larry norman's and eventually a church and um so that was the history of the vineyard. So the vineyard was around. Wimber, Wimber got on board. Wimber did not found the vineyard. Wimber, By the way, this was this was happening before Wimber, right? When when it was meeting right. in your living room. Wimber was not in the picture yet. Then Wimber was speaking into Lonnie's life as an elder, and uh, Wimber kind of had because he, well, it's hard to tell the story chronologically. Lonnie, then let me put that on hold. So there's a vineyard in Anaheim mm-hmm. now. Lonnie goes to Florida. I don't know why. I don't know whether Chuck was unpleased with maybe found out something about his lifestyle or whatever, but he went down to be with Bob Mumford. He came back from there to Wimber's church where he started some pretty uh, charismatic type of healing service, punching people in the stomach for cancer and Kenneth Hagin type stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, they were having a powerful movement as far as I heard. I was never there. But Calvary wasn't happy with it. So they called Wimber in and they said, look, we don't care what you do. We're not going to tell you how to run your church, but that's not Calvary stuff. So could you please? Because they were connected at this he, point, he right? Calvary, Calvary and Vineyard. Were... Was... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, could you uh, change your name? So Wimber calls Ken Gullickson, who's founded the Vineyards. And he said, can I just be a vineyard? And that's how that happened. Then Lonnie, when he came back, because of the move of God in that church, whether we know it was all God or not, I don't know, but it was powerful uh, enough to get a a, a a class at Fuller Seminary, which is very conservative, on signs and wonders. And Charisma Magazine picked up on that, and they began to uh, puff John Wimber, you know. So was this, in, what was Peter Wagner involved no, at this point? Do you no, know? Not that I know of. Okay. Um, this was just a class that Wimber did, but because it was so unusual, Charisma Magazine started to cover what was happening at at uh, Anaheim and all that. And uh, so the name of Wimber rose with the name of the vineyard, is my point. And Lonnie did go back down to Mumford, but that wasn't a vineyard thing. And he came back to the vineyard in Yorba Linda. So. And then from there, he sort of found the left foot of fellowship somehow, I don't know, and uh, 
Did you say the left foot of fellowship? Yeah, that means you kicked out. (laughs) I've never heard that before. (laughs) It's kind of an old story. Oh, my goodness. Then he he did get embittered, and he went out. He actually went to South Africa, and powerful things were happening. He went to Sweden. Uh, But then it started to kind of come down on him. He got a little bitter toward the end, from what I understand. The last time I saw Lonnie, he was not Lonnie of 1970. He was Mm. crushed, hurt, bitter, and I almost didn't recognize him. Physically, he wasn't that much different. He wasn't hippied out anymore when I saw him. I mean, he still had, you know, short, long hair, but he didn't have the Jesus Mm -hmm. look anymore. And he was kind of going downhill from what I saw. That was the last time I saw Lonnie, which was probably about seven, six, six, five years before he died. Then we did do his funeral, but I didn't know too much about that story either. Yeah. So, so in the timeline, when Vineyard went more into that signs and wonders, when it was still Calvary Chapel, Yorba Linda, that's when Chuck Smith came in and said, we're not going there with you. So we're going to have to separate. And that's when the Vineyard went this way and Calvary went Correct. this way. It was even more, it was less Chuck. From, uh, Chuck's nephew, Chuck Brom, the late Chuck Brom told me it wasn't really my, my uncle. He said it was the other guys. It was Greg and Raul Reese and people that called him on the carpet more. So I don't know if Chuck, mm. but Chuck was a kind of guy that, uh, you know, he was real, not really not confrontational. And uh, he probably thought, well, these guys are handling right. it. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's interesting because from um, the guy who wrote the books on Lonnie, who transcribed his recordings, what was his uh, name again? You said uh, his name. Uh, Stan. Um, oh, my gosh. I just said it. Well, that guy, um, I watched a video where he said that um, he actually said it was Chuck who came in the room and basically said, today we divide. Well, I, that may have been with Lonnie. I don't know. That's a separate thing. Okay. You mean, I'm talking about Wimbers. Okay. Well, that's what I thought it was, was Wimber. Oh, it was like, who, that, you know, very, to, today we divide. Well, you go there or you come I here. I was not aware of that story. And that very well could be the yeah. story. And Chuck also, uh, as far as I know, historically saw the emergent movement coming and was made very strong stands mm-hmm. against that as well. Yeah, he saw a lot of things yeah. coming. He knew there was trouble in, in Dodge. He was not unaware of yeah. what was going on. In fact, he was so doctrine conscious that uh, he wasn't real pleased when we used to do meetings with Mumford. And uh, for some reason, though, he liked Catherine Kuhlman, who was pretty radical, you know, and we used to go down and well, do her meetings. You know, what's interesting, you know, what's really interesting about that is, you know, because now we look back on history and everybody sort of has, like, I have opinions on Catherine Coleman, I'll be honest. They might differ from yours, but I have my opinions. Um, but back then, I mean, even Corey Ten Boom did an interview with Catherine Coleman. So it may have been something that people, you know, hadn't really thought through that much, because especially with this was sort of the rise of Christians being in media, right? We, before this, you didn't really have Christians on TV all that much, I mean, that I know of. And so this was probably, it, it was like, you know, it's easy to look back in history and go, oh, well, he was okay with Catherine Krollman. It's very likely because of the lack of media, he wasn't quite aware of all that she was doing and that what she was involved in too. It's it's kind of easy to stand on this side of history right. and judge that. But Yeah, I don't yeah. really know why he, because he was not that tolerant of other people who were pre- preaching things that weren't quite orthodox, you know, and but he liked her for some reason. Yeah. And in the movie, she's depicted coming to the tent to minister when Lonnie's mm. asked if he's a prophet. And she never came to Calvary ever that I knew of. Mm. Now that could, again, see mm-hmm. here, I'm going from my own experience. I wasn't a Calvaryite 
all my life. So I, th this could have happened, but I don't recall it ever happening. I would have heard about it. But we went to her meetings. We, we All the hippies did. They put us up on uh, um, the platform behind her, almost like, hey, I'm down with the kids, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look behind yeah. me. It's, and uh, and yeah. then we also did her TV show, which is where some of those YouTube clips come from, where we say welcome back yeah. and all that. But I don't recall her ever coming to the church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those those videos are super weird to watch just because she's such a strange presence. Well, you know what I understand just, about her? I could be wrong. So I'm saying this with, you know, beware that I'm not saying it as documented, but I did. I, I'll tell you what I did experience. She stuttered. When I met her backstage, she's, you know, well, hello, young man. And I think something might be toward how she she never did it on stage. So I don't know. That could be mm. part of the reason she talked. So, you know, well, let's go to glory. <laughs> but uh, I found it to be. Yeah, I was watching that actress and I was like, she ain't doing it near enough. She, she ain't going no. near enough. For I'm trying to think of anything so. else in the movie that would, uh, you know, uh, Work. Well, I asked you about the prophet scene. As far as you're aware, she never asked him if he thought he was a prophet, and he said Not yes. to my experience or, he, or hearing about it. I never heard that. Yeah, I think a lot yeah. of that was dramatized. And I, um, but I do think, I think Donnie was bitter, but not at that time so much. You know, they made him mm -hmm. look like I'm done here and we're leaving and we're loners and all that. Mm. But it doesn't matter again, because on the overview of the movie, they told the story, they captured the, 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 um, to use your word, the zeitgeist of the times very well. <laughs> and um, so I always, I've been recommending it to everybody to see it, you know. But I, my big warning is two things. It's Greg's story, really not the Jesus Revolution, and it's not a um, um, documentary. So if people go in with that idea, they'll really enjoy the movie. Hey, friends, this is the Q&A portion of my Jesus Revolution podcast episode. I'm re-recording this because we had some significant audio problems when I went from the interview that I was playing to the Q&A. But these were such good questions that I didn't want anybody to miss out. So if you're listening to this on an audio platform, I'm actually re-answering all these questions that I answered in the live stream. If you're watching this on video, it means that you found the link to come to where the audio is as clear as possible. And I will do my best to answer the same way I did on the live stream. We're going to go ahead and leave that portion up on the live stream. So if you want to compare, get a little bit of a different perspective, I'm going to do my best to answer the way that I did. It will not be exact, but I will do my best because these are really, really good questions. And so if you haven't watched my episode called Let's Talk About Jesus Revolution, watch that first because these are the questions that came in throughout that episode. But even if you didn't watch it, I, maybe you'll get something out of this Q&A as well. So the first thing I wanted to talk about before I get into the questions is, as if you heard the interview with my dad, we got a little bit into some of the moral feelings of Lonnie Frisbee. What we didn't really touch a whole lot on was how he did go off into this more mystical, miracle type of movement. And as far as I can tell from church history, that was sort of the launch, or at least out of that movement, that was 
provided the seedbed for really what would become today the NAR or the New Apostolic Reformation. And if anyone's unclear about what that is, NAR is an acronym for New Apostolic Reformation that is a movement within the charismatic church. It does not represent the entire charismatic church. I want to be very clear about that. But within the charismatic church, it's a movement that believes that God reinstated the offices of apostle and prophet, and that the church is to be under the governing authority of these apostles who receive new revelation from God about what the church is supposed to do and where they're supposed to go. Now, I want to be really clear about how that differs from your classic charismatic and Pentecostal theology. I am not a cessationist. I am continuationist in my theology. So this is not a cessationist versus uh, uh, continuationist debate. This has to do with an abuse of the doctrine within a segment of the charismatic church, right? So I know charismatic people who are very concerned about uh, the New Apostolic Reformation. So how that might look, what the difference might look like is you might hear a charismatic say something like, well, I believe God told me to move to Florida and take this new job, or the Holy Spirit just really impressed upon my heart that you know, I needed to pray more for this person or love this person or something like that. Whereas in the NAR, the new revelation is really seen more like an authoritative word of God that the church really must obey and adhere to. And of course, we know as Christians, the Bible is our final authority. And so it just it can lead into all manner of spiritual abuse, um, authoritarian type of abuse. And it's just a movement that I've been really, really concerned about, partially because I really think Lonnie Frisbee was at the forefront front of that as far as where it went. So as the history goes, as best I understand it, you had Calvary Chapel, and then Lonnie went over here with Vineyard. Of course, as you heard from the video, the Vineyard started in my parents' living room with Ken Gullickson before John Wimber got involved. And then as my dad was talking about how Lonnie got into, you know, punching people to pray for cancer and things like that. And and that whole movement sort of went off into, I think, what really became kind of gnar today, as far as I can tell. Whereas Chuck Smith sort of severed that and and did not go there with that. So so it all sort of fomented together in the beginning and then it split. So, you know, I do have some tension in the fact that Lonnie Frisbee was sort of the catalyst for what happened at Calvary Chapel, but also possibly the catalyst for what we see today, um, or at least as it came out of that movement, what we see today as NAR or New Apostolic Reformation. So I want to show you something that I have here because it reminds me um, uh, to, to remember the grace of God for all of us, because here's the thing. And when we're talking about NAR, nobody is calling into question anyone's salvation. This, um, So if I were to say somebody's not a Christian or not leading you to salvation, like when the Bible says mark and avoid false teachers, we're talking about people that are actively leading you to sin and sanctifying sin or leading you away from the gospel, preventing someone from becoming a Christian or coming to a saving knowledge of the gospel. Um, with, you know, outside of that, there can be a lot of error. We all have error. Um, I'm not comfortable with that bit of the history. I'll just be honest. I have a lot of tension with it, but I want to show you this work of art that I have that reminds me to pray for leaders because... Um, it can be, you know, very difficult to be a leader. And we all have error, right? And it's easy to look back at this point in history and judge what came before. But what I'm going to show you is this is a hand-carved owl that Lonnie Frisbee made. And if you're listening on the audio platforms, I'm holding up. Um, it's about six inches long, and it looks like it was carved out of rock. And then if you look into the owl's face, you can see he's carved in the eyes there. And then on the bottom here, it says his name, Frisbee. So you can see that he signed that with his name, and 
I just keep that as a reminder. Whenever I look at it, I think about how flawed we all are, the error that we all have, and how important it is for us to maintain that biblical authority, because we need to know that no matter where a person goes or what they're teaching, we need to measure that against Scripture, and I think that's really important. All right, so I want to get to some of these really good questions. The first one was from David, and he said, do you see any connection between the release of this movie and the Asbury revival? So what I would say to that is I actually don't see any reason to connect the two things. I'm fallible. I'm just a person. Obviously, God is sovereign, and he might have some bigger plan that's not real obvious to me. But I don't see any reason to connect those things. And one of the reasons for that is that what the phenomenon we saw happen at Asbury is so radically different from what happened at Calvary Chapel in the late 60s, early 70s. So in the Calvary Chapel uh, events, it was unchurched people, largely non-Christian people who heard the gospel, responded, converted to Christianity, gave their hearts to Christ, and then came back to Calvary Chapel night after night, primarily for hours of Bible study. There was some music, but it wasn't primarily music and testimony and things like that. There was just tons and tons of Bible study, and that's something that Chuck Smith was such a stickler on, is he was such a gospel-centered preacher, such a uh, a Bible teacher. And so even my dad said in the video, if you sat under Chuck for two years, you knew the Bible pretty well. Whereas what I see happen at Asbury, and I'm not discounting this because it's different, I'm just saying it's a slightly different thing. You have something that's marked more by primarily music with some testimony and some scripture readings. And I've been told the gospel was preached. I I still haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, If you want to go back and see some of my commentary on this, I have a video I posted to my YouTube channel and to my audio podcast that you can listen to. Then I did a live stream on Instagram that I also published to my audio podcast. And then on the unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierly, I had a dialogue with the president of Asbury Seminary and Gavin Ortland about this and really asked those questions and still have not really been given a satisfying answer that the gospel is being preached there. So I think that's a, maybe if, if anything, it might be something where students received some kind of renewal in their, in their spirits, a refreshment, maybe a recommitment to the Lord. And I really, really want to be clear, I don't want to discount what somebody somebody's experience by asking some of these questions. I am absolutely sure, as I've said before, and I'll continue to say, that I am sure that there are cases where a student who cried out to God, came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repented, and committed their life to Christ, or recommitted their life to Christ, and maybe even experienced this refreshing in the Lord that was so so needed in their life. And I am sure we're going to hear great testimonies of that and long-term fruit from that. But the two Uh, events are so radically different. I just don't personally see any reason to say there's any kind of a connection there, but that's me. All right. Next question is from Kathy. She says, how do we present the gospel to a generation that believes they can write their own truth? So this is the difficulty, right? Because in the late 60s, early 70s, the general mood of culture was one of spiritual searching. People were desperate. You had the Vietnam War going on. Uh, People were turning to drugs in Eastern religion and reacting against the conventions of, uh, of culture, and they were looking for something really authentic. And so it was a slightly different culture in that people were looking for Jesus. You just, like, where is he? We want to know. We want to know who God is. And then you could share the gospel, and there was just a lot more, fer- I think, fertile soil for that. Whereas the challenge we have today is that the the younger generation and our culture in general has largely rejected the idea that truth exists or even can be known, especially when it comes to the realms of morality and religion. And so 
what I think it's going to require to help present the gospel. Now, certainly, anybody can present the gospel at any time to anyone, and the Holy Spirit can move upon someone's heart, draw them to salvation, and that can happen 100%. But as we're thinking about evangelism, we want to do the best evangelism we can. And so sometimes that requires us to take a couple of steps back and look and see what are the obstacles that standing between this person and their ability to see clearly the gospel or to see clearly the cross. Have they been told the Bible's not reliable and that's blocking their view? Have they been told science and faith are incompatible and that's blocking their view? Have they been told that truth doesn't exist? You just make your own construct of truth. You find, you cobble together a religion that works for you, makes you have more peace in your life and gives you some sort of a practical way to live better and be a better person. And, and maybe that's standing in the way. And so if that's the case, what we have to do is what we call in apologetics pre-evangelism and help just clear some of those obstacles out of the way. And one of the primary obstacles, especially among this younger generation right now, this has been shown in data that was released from, uh, I believe it was Pew Research in conjunction with Impact 360, about the younger generation generally embracing the idea that morality is relative, that truth when it comes to these existential questions is really relative to each person. So we have to recapture the vision for truth, I think, for this younger generation, starting with the definition of truth. What is truth? Is truth that which corresponds to reality? Or is it something that's just relative to each person and their perspective, given their current cultural moment and you know where they live, where what time period they grew up in? Is truth just relative to each society and culture? And I think we need to get back to that first definition that truth is that which is real. It's it's something you believe or say that lines up with reality. And if we can recapture that for this younger generation, then that's going to give a really good foundation to be able to preach the gospel. Because here's the thing, Christianity stands or falls based on objective truth. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, or I'm sorry, not 3 through 5, later in the chapter, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. And I can't think of any other religion that makes a historical claim like that. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that if Jesus Christ did not come back to life and come out of the grave, then Christianity is false. You might as well go cobble something together that works for you, that gives you more peace in your life. Go do the Buddhist Eightfold Path or something. But if he did, then that proves Christianity true and all the claims Jesus made about himself to be true as well. And so in a practical sense, how I might approach something like that with somebody who's not quite wrapped their head around that is maybe talk about the way different religions work and the claims that they make about themselves. Because Christianity is really the only religion I can think of that makes a claim like that. Like, hey, you could actually prove us false. If, if in objective reality, you could prove that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And then maybe bring in some of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, might share with them, did you know that even if you never opened a Bible, you could reasonably conclude, I'm not saying you could prove it, but you could reasonably conclude from non-Christian historical sources within about 150 years of Jesus' life, that he was a real person who had a brother named James, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he was known to be a miracle worker, that he was known to be virtuous, that he there was earthquake and uh, uh, darkness at his death, that his closest followers believed they saw him alive after he had died. And you could also reasonably conclude that those followers went to their deaths, even enduring and being willing to endure 
uh, torture and persecution going to their death, maintaining that testimony to be true. And that's without even opening your Bible. You could reasonably conclude those all of those facts. Now, you could save yourself some time and just read the New Testament because it affirms all of that stuff. But essentially, you, you try to get people thinking, well, how do you explain that? How do you explain these people who walked with Jesus and then saw, claimed they saw him alive after he was dead and were willing to go to their deaths for it. And somebody might say, well, a lot of people are willing to die for what they believe is true. We see that with Muslim martyrs. We've seen that with Christian martyrs. Well, that's true. You and I might be willing to give our lives for our belief that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about eyewitnesses, people who would have known whether or not what they were saying was actually true or false. And nobody's going to endure what they endured or be willing to endure for what they absolutely knew confirmed was a lie. So it's really strong evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And you can maybe bring some of these in. You can bring in some biblical reliability, but the best way to do that, I think, is to equip ourselves first, get get some good uh, information, maybe get a good apologetics book. If biblical reliability is the issue, there's some really great books out there, Cold Case Christianity by J. Werner Wallace. There's more academic books. If you have somebody that's more uh, looking to engage with the arguments from that level, just really, really great, great resources out there and on the resurrection as well. And all of these questions, there's there's lay-level books, and there's academic books. So anything you need to help think through some of these questions is available. And I think we just have to recapture the vision of objective truth for this younger generation. All right, the third question is from Christine. I'm so glad you asked this question, Christine. She said, what about Catherine Coleman and NAR? So I will admit to you that I just have a lot of tension uh, about this part of the history of the whole thing because it's very confusing to me. Um, I, I have not investigated the teachings of Catherine Coleman deeply enough to be able to say what I, you know, what I think she is, but she absolutely is considered by many in the NAR to be a general, which is a code word for a apostle. And, um, you know, and by the way, when I was talking about charismatic versus NAR beliefs, there might even be some charismatics that might say uh, they they believe in, in apostles, but they mean apostles being more like church planters, missionaries, itinerant preachers, things like that. But what the NAR sense of the word is talking about almost on par. Now, they won't say that this is the case, but they function this way, almost on par with the apostles that Jesus commissioned and the prophets that Jesus commissioned to write the New Testament, right? The earliest church sat under the teaching of the apostles. These are the people Jesus commissioned. Uh, and and so this is one of the reasons we consider their words to be on par with Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Uh, so, so I have um, a real big problem with uh, this whole Catherine Coleman being involved in this whole thing, but she was. I mean, that's accurate history. You can even find on YouTube, my dad was on her show as a 24-year-old guy. And um, and so I have a lot of conflict with that. I'm not comfortable with it, but it is the reality. It, it She was some, you know, not intensely involved on the day-to-day -day thing, but there was some overlap there. That certainly is true. And I do think that what she was a part of really did become what we know today as NAR, which is, you know, can end in a lot of spiritual abuse and things like that. All right. Number four, this is from Encouraged Faith. Have you seen Mike Winger's video about false end time prophecies of Chuck Smith? If so, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. And this is another question I'm really glad that you asked because, of course, as you can tell, I have a great affection for Chuck Smith. I respect him a lot. He was a man of great conviction. I love that he was gospel-centered and Bible-centered. But he did have some error. We all do, right? We all have—people are going to look back on me in 100 years and 
pick all the things I did wrong and, and demonstrate that for sure. We all have the air. Nobody has perfect theology. And so I do think Mike Winger did a really good job of handling that and talking about that. Um, it's something that needs to be addressed and talked about. Um, I'm, I'm kind of bummed that that happened, right? I think that we can all learn from that and make sure we don't make those predictions because the Bible clearly says not to do that. But I, I would also even, to take it a step further, would have one more critique of Chuck Smith, and that's that in the Calvary Chapel paradigm, he he kind of had this, what they call the Moses model of leadership, where you just kind of have one guy that's at the helm of everything and making the decisions, whereas the the biblical standard for leadership is a plurality of elders so that power is balanced and that it's not just depending on one person. And I've been really encouraged to see some churches even moving from the Moses model to the plurality of elders model. I was just at a church a couple months ago that was in the process of doing that. So I think that's another thing we can learn from. Uh, so yeah, I, that, I, think, I think Mike Winger did a really good job of handling that. I would recommend everybody go watch that video. And uh, finally, Christy is asking, can you address Lonnie's proclamation of being a prophet? Hebrews says that God now speaks through his son, Jesus. Yeah, so as you heard in my conversation with my dad, I don't think that that actually happened, at least that I'm aware of. It may have, where Catherine Coleman asked Lonnie, do you think you're a prophet? And Lonnie kind of comes around to saying, yes, I think I am. I'm not sure that's historically accurate. So I don't know firsthand if Lonnie claimed to be a prophet in and of himself, uh, in and of himself. Again, I am I am 100% sure that Lonnie was my brother in Christ. He had a lot of error. I, I don't like the mystical miracle thing he went into. Um, and I don't know if he would have called himself a prophet. I'm not personally comfortable theologically calling someone a prophet or an apostle. Um, and again, the classical charismatic belief would be that the gift of prophecy, maybe, you know, charismatics would believe the gift of prophecy continued. Um, and they might interpret that to mean something like encouraging words for the church, uh, you know, pointing people to the truth of God's word, having a really sharp sense of discernment to do such things. Um, but I'm not comfortable with the office of apostle and prophet because that's a very unique thing in history where God, um, Jesus commissioned apostles and prophets um, for a specific purpose in church history, which is to write scripture and have that sort of canonized for us today. So, um, I don't know personally if he called himself a prophet. I know probably other people did refer to him as a prophet. Uh, but again, people equivocate on that word. Even if you read a, one of my favorite books is A.W. Tozer, Voice of a Prophet. But when he talks about a prophet, he's talking about somebody that brings people back to the Word of God and has a really sharp exhortation gift to do that. Um, he's not talking about the type of prophets we see in the, in the Old Testament and or even in the New Testament. So uh, yeah, as far as I know, I don't know if that happened, but I would not I would not agree with that if he did. So, all right. Well, guys, thank you so much for watching. I wanted to make sure you got these questions answered to the best of my ability. But if you want to go deeper and you want to learn, maybe further your education, uh, I can't recommend SES highly enough, Southern Evangelical Seminary. I'm a student there currently, and uh, they're just the best. They, they are standing against woke culture. They, are, uh, they have solid doctrinal statements and theology. They apply philosophy apologetics and theology to absolutely every class. Love SES. Go to ses.edu slash Alisa, download a free ebook and learn more there. ses.edu slash Alisa. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.
Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.